Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the Political Party Podcast. This one features former Labour MP Tom Harris. He's also author of a fantastic book called Ten Years in the Death of the Labour Party. So you can imagine the sort of conversation we had. Tom was an MP in Glasgow for 14 years for Labour. Um, describes himself as a Blairite, but stands on some... Maybe stands in positions on certain issues that you might be surprised by. Um... He's pro-union, but I'll leave it at that because the conversation reveals um, where exactly he stands on different things and, and why, and it therefore leads to some uh, fascinating conversations about things we don't often talk about. Um, so I shall not ruin the conversation at all, but leave you in the hands of Tom Harris. I'm delighted today to be joined by Tom Harris, former Labour MP for Glasgow, Cathcart and Glasgow South, 14 years a member of the party, um, uh, sorry, a member of Parliament for the Labour Party up in Scotland. Tom, welcome to the show. It's great to be here, thank you. Tom, we will talk about your fantastic book, Ten Years in the Death of the Labour Party, uh, in due course, and I would fully recommend it to, to all listeners as a, a fantastic insider account uh, of the... Um, of the erosion, really, of, uh, of the Labour Party, as, as perhaps you and I might see it. But I wanted to start a lot earlier than then, because you, in 1990, oh. became press officer to Scottish Labour. Yes. And I was thinking about this earlier today, just thinking, what an incredible period that must have been to be, compared to Scottish Labour now, Scottish Labour then was just this embarrassment of riches, of talent, of Brown, Smith... Cook, Dewar, I mean, it must have been Robertson, there must have been, it must have been such a thrill to be working for the party back then. It was an amazing time, and it was a fantastic job to have at that age, because I was only 26 when I started, and I had spent years kind of idolising all these giants of the labour movement from afar, and then suddenly, going from reporting on a local newspaper to, you know, rubbing shoulders with John Smith, Donald Deere, wow. Gordon Brown, Robin Cook... And I, re- you know, my biggest regret from that time is that I didn't keep a diary. <clears throat> you know, it really was a great opportunity. And and yeah, I mean, it's what makes me sad is the contrast between what was the situation then, and you look at the Labour Party in Scotland now, and you know, it's, it's it's like you know, it's like before and after Hiroshima. You know, you it's difficult to draw a comparison because they're just so different. Do you still keep a diary then? No, I never did keep a diary. That's so right. not, I mean, I, I presumed based on what you'd said that you hadn't kept a diary then, that you'd then rectified no, that in later life. No, I tried to keep a diary when I became an MP, as every single one of my colleagues did. <laughs> they tried and we all failed. The only person I know who I think still keeps what he calls his journal 
because for Chris Bryant, it's, it's, it has to be a journal, not a diary. <laughs> <laughs> um, and Chris, Chris does keep his journal. I caught him filling it out one, one night <clears throat> in the library of the House of Commons, and he quickly kind of closed the page. I said, you're writing about me? He says, I always write about you. <laughs> so I, I, I presume the reason you then don't, per, you know, persist with the diary and that why others don't, it's just it becomes too much of a chore. Yeah, yeah. I'm just too lazy. You know, you, you, you get home at night, <clears throat> especially when you're working at the Commons and you, you get home 11 or 12 at night, the last thing you feel like is opening up and starting to write. Now, I mean, if you look at Alistair Campbell's diary, he is the best yes. diarist. Um, I am in awe that he managed to basically fill out every single day. Once or twice he says, you know, this is written a couple of days after the events because he was he was too too busy. But if you, I mean, his diaries are just amazing, and I'm just in awe that he actually managed to keep up a daily diary for so long. I mean, when you mention Scottish Labour now, led by Richard Leonard, oh, I'd forgotten that. I mean, <laughs> when you compare him to Brown, Smith, Dewar, and those other towering figures of the Scottish Labour movement, I mean, in a way that Corbyn is out of step with other Labour leaders. I mean, where does Richard Leonard come? I mean, it is, how can you compare him to those people? <clears throat> It'd be a bit unfair <clears throat> to say that just because he's not Smith or Dewar or Brown, then, then that's his fault in some way. I've got a bit more time for Richard than I have for Corbyn, for example. I think Richard, who I've known for a very long time, and we have almost always been on opposite sides of the fence, you know, because we're different wings of the party. But he always struck me as somebody who was Labour, first and foremost. Uh, he was a union guy, he came from that tradition on the left of being you know, a solid trade unionist, loyal to the Labour Party. I think that's slightly different uh, and significantly different as well, if, you, if it can be slightly and significantly, from the way Corbyn is. I don't think Corbyn is in the line of succession of Labour prime ministers and Labour leaders over the years. He represents a... a a different kind of philosophy that's entirely alien to the Labour tradition, whereas I think Richard uh, is is kind of loyal to that tradition. He's just on the left. In terms of the collapse of Scottish Labour specifically, let alone anything south of the border, it's been rapid. Yeah. And it, it obviously the, the seeds of it were sown over many years of perhaps complacency in the heartlands and things like that. And I remember working on the Cathcart by-election... Um, Oh, crikey, when would that have been? 2006, 2005? 2005. I didn't, didn't know you were around, man. Yes, yeah, I, I came up and volunteered in Livingston for Jim Devine. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Cathcart must have been for the Scottish Parliament. It was. The Cathcart by-election was caused when our local MSP, Mike Watson, set fire to a big hotel. That's right. Full of journalists and politicians. Um, and it was the most bizarre thing. I was supposed to have been... It was, it was after the uh, Scottish Politician of the Year Awards in Edinburgh, and I was supposed to have gone, and in hindsight, thank goodness I didn't. I had to go in, to be in London because Cherie Blair was hosting some kids from my constituency in Downing Street, so I had to be there. So when I got back up on the Thursday night, um, it was on the, on the Friday night, we were feeding the, the children, and, and I got a phone call... At six o'clock, and I got a phone call from Donald who worked for me, and he says, "Are you watching television?" I said, "No." Turn it on. There's a weird thing on about Mike Watson and the, the, the Scottish Politician of the Year awards, and I, I missed it. I couldn't see it on television. And he said, "He said what it was," and I thought, "That's odd." 
So I, I, I googled and I found a tiny little reference, and then I phoned up Leslie Quinn, who was the general secretary of the Scottish Party. And it was, of course, I had an interest in it because it was my. It was this, we were representing exactly the same seats, me in Westminster, him in, in Holyrood. And I said, Leslie, what's going on? And she told me what what had happened. And I said, Leslie, there but for the grace of God. I mean, which of us can honestly say that we have not tried to set fire to a hotel <laughs> full of politicians and journalists? Mike was just unlucky he got caught. And she said, you're an evil bastard, Harris. When <laughs> you think about those days where even in 2005, Labour absolutely dominant in Scotland. And then things started to obviously in the in the in, in Holyrood the SNP started to make inroads, but then really the, the tidal wave caused by the by the 2014 referendum, which supercharged the kind of anti Labour sentiment uh, across Scotland. Would you ever have seen the collapse of Scottish Labour coming in that way? No, and I don't believe anyone if they say they did. But I, I take issue with your comment earlier about you know Scottish Labour sowed the seeds of its own demise with complacency and you know arrogance in office and everything. Mm. If you look at the Scottish Labour Party, it's indistinguishable from the Labour Party in the northwest of the northeast um, in terms of the politics, in terms of the culture. What was different in Scotland, of course, was devolution, was the Scottish Parliament, yeah. and you know. In 2010, just four years before the, de- the, the independence referendum, 41 Labour MPs were returned. Um, and I had a majority of 12,500. That wasn't untypical. Um, and, and, of course, five years later, my opponent won a majority of the same size. You know, it was a massive swing against us. And it, it did happen very, very quickly. And whatever you say about... I mean, there's something to be said for Scottish Labour's arrogance and complacency... But if it hadn't been for that referendum, the wipeout would not have happened. It's just, it just wouldn't. That was the catalyst that brought everything down. What's your view of devolution then? Because at the time, obviously, it was seen as a, a key achievement of the new Labour era, seen as very long overdue, seen as the right thing to do, seen as good politics for the UK. In the last year or two, I've spoken to people that previously would have agreed with it who now think, actually, it has hastened the the move towards an independent Scotland rather than sated the appetite for, for some power. I think devolution is wonderful. <laughs> um, you know, I, I even when I worked, you, you mentioned about when I worked for the Scottish Labour Party, Donald and I used to disagree about devolution. I was not a devolutionist and, and we used to have quite good arguments about it. And there were two or three other people in the office who were on my side and most people were on Donald's side. But we held the line in public, obviously, yeah. and uh, I, and we held the line once I became an MP because that was absolutely vital to safeguard Holyrood and, and Labour representatives. I wouldn't say I'm against devolution, but I think you know the attitude towards devolution has has been just atrocious from 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 the Labour Party. I mean, you can criticise Theresa May for many things. We could spend many hours of a podcast doing that. Yeah. The one thing that I was impressed at is that she did something that none of her predecessors has ever done. She said no to the SNP. And that had never happened before. Because ever since 1999, the you know the direction of travel has been one way. It's been towards more powers. And lots of people in the Labour Party would say things like, devolution isn't an event, it's a process. Mm. And my argument was always, well, if it's a process, where's it going? Yes. Um, and I think that concern has been entirely justified and 
You know, every time the SNP and Civic Scotland demanded more powers, uh, the automatic reaction, first of the Brown government and then the Cameron government, was, yes, of course, here, have more powers. And they thought that giving more powers, not just to Holyrood, but to the SNP who were in power by then, would somehow satisfy their demand for independence. Yeah. It was just the most bizarre, uh, illiterate kind of politics. Um, and we are where we are. And I think that's partly as a result of always giving in to the SNP. So, I mean, would you have had some devolution or would you have had none at all? Um, going back to before 99. Yeah. Um, I would probably have had devolution. I probably would have had the Scottish Parliament because there's no doubt, you know, that there is a legitimate grievance in Scotland in terms of uh, self-governance and why should you know, powers like education. You know, the Act of Union 1707 actually guaranteed that Scotland would have its own education and its own legal systems. Now, if those systems are guaranteed in law, then why allow Westminster to continue to run them? So yes. there was always an argument for at least democratising the powers of the Scottish office um, and allowing those to be run by locally elected representatives. But the way it's happened... Um, we've just lost control of it. I mean, I, I think there was... You know, Donald had the vision for the original Scottish Parliament. Nobody, absolutely nobody since then, has had the vision or the courage to stand up and say, well, this is how it should be. In terms then of, of it being a, a process, not an event, do you think that independence is now inevitable? No, I don't. I That's not to say it won't happen, but it's not inevitable. Nothing in politics is inevitable. Mm. Th this... this I remember, and we'll come back to Europe, no doubt, but I remember people saying that adoption of the euro was inevitable, and I remember speaking to people at the time saying, this is undemocratic language, because as soon as you say it's inevitable, there's no point in having a debate about it, there's no point in having a vote. If it's inevitable, let's get it over with. Yeah. And that, that's, that's my view on independence. Independence won't happen, provided Scots, who are in the majority Unionists and the majority voted for the union, and sometimes that's forgotten in the, mm. the debate that we have in Scotland. And provided um, prime ministers at Westminster uh, are faithful to the SNP's promise not to hold another referendum, uh, at least for another generation. Um, there is no argument for saying there should be a referendum at the moment. There's no argument for saying in 25 years, unless there is a huge demand already among the Scottish public for that. You can't have a referendum just because the people, uh, the, just because the, a party, political party wants it. You've got to listen to what the people are saying and there's no popular demand in Scotland for a referendum. Obviously the, the Brexit debate seems to give at least on the surface a kind of sense of fairness that Scotland did vote substantially to stay in the in the EU and obviously Scotland will leave the EU as a result of the referendum result. That at least makes the settlement trickier, doesn't it? I mean, at least you could say that that represents a change in terms. Well, let's go back to pre-2014. The thing about referendums, first of all, they're all shite. <laughs> you, you, you should never have one. That's the yeah. first thing. There's a one caveat to that, and I'll, I'll probably come to that later on. But if you want to know the terms of an agreement that is resolved by a referendum, listen to the protagonists before polling day of the referendum. Mm. Don't listen to a single thing they say afterwards. Listen to what they say during the referendum. What the SNP said about Britain leaving the EU and England taking Scotland out of the EU against its will 
what the SNP actually said before the, the referendum on independence was, if Scotland votes no, we run the risk of being taken out of the EU against our will. They didn't say that would justify another referendum. They said Scotland would be outside the EU. That is, was their policy before the referendum happened. Now, it, it just so happens that if yes had won in 2014, we would have left the EU more than two years ago. Because leaving the UK would have meant leaving the EU because we wouldn't have inherited the, the, the UK's membership. So all this is stuff and nonsense. It was inevitable the SNP were going to call for another referendum the day after the last one, just as Farage would have called for another EU referendum had he lost in 2016. That's what people do when they lose a referendum, as we now know. They call for another one. But you don't think that the, the material change in the relationship, just out of a sense of political fairness, no. changes Scotland's relationship with the UK? No, because that debate was had in the run-up to the 2014 election. Um, it was discussed. It was actually put in black and white into the SNP's white paper. That was the, t- you know, the, the blueprint for independence. It actually said precisely this. The consequences of voting no could mean that we're taken out of the EU against our will. Now, Scots understood that. We read it. We listened to politicians telling us that. Did people read the white paper, do you think? Um, well, actually, a surprisingly <laughs> large amount of them. I mean, there was nothing much else to do in Scotland at that time. Uh, but, but you know, it was repeated ad nauseum by SNP politicians. We knew, I mean, this is important. That was their manifesto. And you say, you know, we all know people don't read manifestos, but manifestos are important. They, they represent a bond with the electorate in advance of a vote. And that's what they put in their manifesto. We should take that seriously. There was absolutely no reference whatever to... Uh, what was the phrase you used about the uh, change in circumstance? Yes. Material change in circumstance. That was invented after the referendum. And that for good reason. If they had said before 2014 referendum that there might be a second when their whole campaign would have collapsed. Ha, ha, ha. Uh, but that, that's the fact. They, they never said anything before the referendum. Therefore, I don't think it applies. The SMB obviously still hugely popular in Scotland, really kind of the only game in town at the moment in terms of Holyrood and Westminster. There's been a small Conservative resurgence, a, a small Labour one, after the wipeout. How does Scottish Labour get back in business in Scotland? I don't know, because I, I wrote a piece a couple of weeks ago for Labour Hame website, yeah. um, which was my baby, by the way. I, I launched Labour Hame back in 2011. And won many awards. It won many awards, and it was necessary, I think, at the time. I was really concerned about what, what was happening to Scottish Labour after the wipeout in 2011 at the Scottish Parliament elections, and I thought we needed something like that to to have a debate about the way forward. Um, it didn't work, by the way, spoiler alert. <laughs> um, uh, what were we talking about? <laughs> Just saying, how does Labour get back in business in Scotland? Oh, Jesus. <laughs> I, I, I don't know if it can. I mean, p- people have this assumption about political parties that somehow they've got a God-given right to exist, and, and they may have a bad year one year, but, but you know, just hang around, it'll improve. There is nothing to suggest that the Labour Party has a right to exist in Scotland because when you think about it, right, there are two massive constitutional divides in Scotland. One is over independence, one is over the EU. Mm. Scottish Labour have, by an act of genius, 
contrived to piss off people on both sides of both of those arguments. <laughs> so if you're for independence, you hate them. Yeah. If you're against independence, you don't trust them because they've equivocated on the union and on a second referendum. On the EU, if you're a Remainer, you're pissed off that they've they're, they're basically capitulated. And if you're a Lever, you're pissed off that they haven't actually got their MPs to vote for May's deal or, or done anything to get us out of the EU. So, I mean... You've got to be impressed by that, actually. That is a remarkable feat of political suicide that's never been achieved before. So then the answer actually would be to be explicitly pro-union and explicitly anti-Brexit. It would, but I think it's too late now. Mm. Uh, I mean, uh, you've got... Supposing that happened, you know, you've then got the Liberal Democrats saying, well, we didn't have to have a tortuous self-analysis about this. This is just what we believe. The SNP would say the same. Uh, the Tories would say, well, we've always been pro-union. Yes. So, so where is the market for for that particular message? If you're uh, left of centre, um, you know, the, the SNP are there. If, you, if, if the union matters to you, the Tories are there and the Liberals are there. And, you know, Anything could happen. I mean, my, my, my touch, my, my kind of watchword for the current political situation is everything is possible, nothing is likely. So, yes, it is quite possible that, that the Scottish Labour will, will somehow recover, but it's very difficult to see that happening unless, unless there's a radical change of leadership at the UK level. I wonder about the Lib Dems in Scotland then, because south of the border, they've had a resurgence in the European elections and just, you know, it's become acceptable to vote Lib Dem again. And people who'd never voted Lib Dem before, like Alistair Campbell, like many others, are now admitting that in the European elections, because of Brexit and other things, they're now finding themselves voting Lib Dem. I wonder in Scotland, could the Lib Dems... Be the progressive pro-union choice, do you think? Or is there just not enough space in the debate up there? There's enough space if Scottish Labour were completely to disappear. Um, you've got to remember that for many years, Scotland was the Liberal Democrats' stronghold mm. outside the West Country, really. You know, Scotland regularly returned 10 Lib Dem MPs. Charles Kennedy, John Thurso. John Thurso, Russell Brown. Yes. Uh, Russell or it wasn't Russell Brown, Russell, somebody over in Inverness, uh, Ray Meekie in Argyll. You know, there were a lot of names belonged to yeah. the past who held those seats for a long time and basically were the, the ballast of the Liberal Democrats at UK level. Uh, in fact, I remember explained to, being explained to me once that the first-past-the-post system actually helped the Lib Dems in Scotland because they got far more seats than their percentage nationally of the vote would, would justify anyway. Um, so it's possible there is that opportunity, but you know, we talk about referendums. So you're a Blairite, oh, yes, a, a Blairite pro union Brexiteer. Yeah, <laughs> I, <laughs> that final bit is what's going to take people by surprise if well, they don't know who you are. Um, if I were to form a party to represent my views, there would be no one else in it. It would just be me. Oh, Change UK. <laughs> no, I, I would love to support Change UK, but they're so mental about second referendums. Well, I mean, you, I, the Brexit bit, I mean, uh, you know, we've known each other a few years. Yeah. We are on the same page on basically everything apart from Brexit. Yeah. What is it about the EU that you were so anti? Well, we say so anti. I mean, th- th- this pisses me off, this whole debate. <laughs> Everyone is either mad 
and hates the EU and doesn't get to sleep because they're so angry about it. Mm. Or they're like, frankly, most of the Parliamentary Labour Party just now and they go to bed with a, a union flag duvet over them. And union flag or EU? Uh, EU flag duvet <laughs> and, and, and dream of second referendums. And, you know, get a life. You know, most people, even you know, certainly before the referendum, most people didn't really think about the EU and if they did think about it, they were a bit meh about it. And I don't think it's a subject that justifies anger. I think it justifies strong feelings. But I am not a rabid Brexiter because if I were, I'd, I'd be conceding to be put into the same category as certain other political individuals that I don't want to be associated with. But had you always been a Eurosceptic? Not a Eurosceptic. Um, it goes back to the late 90s um, when I, entirely because of my own reading and calculation, realised that the euro, or it was the single European currency, yeah. it was called at the time, was a dreadful, dreadful idea. And and I and I saw it for what it was. I saw it as an attempt to nation build, yeah. to, to, to build a United States of Europe. I saw that if you had a single currency, um, you had a single interest rate, which meant you needed a single a central bank. Yes. And therefore you needed democratic institutions to hold that to account. Then you had control of fiscal of monetary policy. And if you've got control of monetary policy, you might as well have control of fiscal policy. And before you know it, you've got a United States of Europe. I mean there was no doubt in my mind that that was where that particular policy was heading. Because you don't need a single currency to trade. Um, and I, I felt very strongly about this. I felt this was really quite anti democratic. And I went along to a local branch meeting. Bear in mind this was at a time when I was thinking of standing as a candidate and and I knew that I wasn't going to be very popular by bringing forward a motion saying that Britain should not join the euro and I passed out copies of the of the, the, the resolution and I was invited to speak and I spoke I thought I spoke quite articulately and uh, didn't get a single seconder and it, it just fell no one was interested and it was incredibly frustrating to me and when I became an MP I remember saying, putting my name to a few letters, writing to the Chancellor Gordon Brown, asking that we don't join yeah. the euro, and and that was all tolerated and everything. So it started off with with, with that, and I think I was right in that. Uh, you know, uh, it turned out that you know you've been vindicated. I I've think been by events. Yeah. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question and take advantage of 30% off? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com to get 30% off. Select lab-grown diamonds. That's BlueNile.com for 30% off lab-grown diamonds. BlueNile.com. Um, and Gordon Brown agreed with you. Gordon Brown, thanks to Ed Balls. Ed Balls doesn't get enough credit on this. Ed Balls, I remember speaking to him when he was first elected about the Euro, and I was really relieved to hear him talk uh, about you know his opposition to, to the Euro for exactly the same political reasons that, that I had. Now, actually, 
if you had spoken to, we met for the first time at a, a Labour conference in 2015 in yeah. Brighton. If we had discussed the EU referendum at that point, I would have told you I was a Remainer. And I was. I remember speaking to wow. Jim, Jim Knight, Lord Knight, yeah. um, about, the, you know, after I lost my seat, I had a chat with Jim about, you know, what I could do and, you know, public affairs projects and stuff. And he mentioned about working for the Remain campaign. And I thought, mm, <laughs> wasn't that enthusiastic. But it was, you know, <laughs> I, 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 I tucked it away at the back of my mind. Right up until January 2016, I was certainly not enthusiastic but I was kind of resigned probably to just voting Remain because I couldn't be bothered with the, the opposite position. And it wasn't enthusiastic. Um, and then I saw red because David Cameron came back from his negotiations with, with Brussels. And, he, and, and I think he had managed to secure a change in the font to some of the letterheading. He's got uh, an opt-out on ever closer union. He hasn't. That was part of the negotiation. That's what he said. Handbrake on immigration. Nonsense. All of this is wrong. He got nothing. The, he, the, did get out the, he did get the opt-out on Ever Closer Union. He didn't, he didn't because it's not in a treaty. And if you look at fullfact.org, they did an analysis of the deal at the time back in 2016. They said it, it's meaningless because it's not legally enforceable. And of course it wasn't because the, the EU refused to, they didn't take him seriously enough to say, right, we'll put this into a treaty. Now, l- let me put this, this is, this is what I was thinking, this is how my mind worked at the time. <laughs> Here is a Prime Minister of one of the biggest countries in the EU, the second biggest financial contributor, and he has committed himself, rightly or wrongly, to a referendum. And he's gone to his friends who are fellow leaders of the EU, and he said to them, look, I need your help. I've got this referendum coming down the road, um, I need something big enough that will that will change people's minds because the history of polling in Britain is that it's going to be very close, mm. at least possibly with a big leave majority according to some of the polls at that time. So help me out, please. Help me out. We need to be flexible. And they told him to fuck off. <laughs> right? Now, that for me was a very obvious example of an organisation that is just not willing ever to be flexible. It really, as I thought, if they're not even going to lift a finger to help David, then fuck them. Um, I decided there and then I was going to vote Remain. But I, you know what? I, I mean, there's so many things, and I'm loving it. Leave him in. Vote Leave, I said. Is, 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 um, I was never sure how many people were actually affected by the negotiation. That whether that was going to play a part in deciding opinion that people had probably, deep down, made up their mind years ago and that the campaign would kind of just tease that out of people. But not only were you, you know, and not you're just not any member of the public, you're a politician, a Labour politician, a Blairite, who's, the negotiation was crucial in changing your mind. Yeah, it was. I mean, there's other things. I mean, when I was a minister... Bananas. I've never that strong of you, <laughs> Bananas, actually. I don't care about the shit, as long as they taste fine. Yeah, I'm, I'm exactly the same. No, I'll, I'll give you an example. I mean, w- when you're a minister, every decision you take has got to be you know EU compliant and that's fair enough if you're a member yeah. of the club you've got to be the rules but I remember once and this was just ridiculous I was the railways minister and we were going to extend the Pendolino service the Virgin Pendolino service from Glasgow to Houston great service it, it's a great service nine cars originally we were going to put a couple of carriages on make it 11 cars yeah you would think that would be quite a, a, a straightforward thing but 
as well as buying the carriages, we had to test an 11-car Pendolino on the West Coast. And I said to my officials, well, Virgin will test it, won't they? I said, well, Minister, the EU procurement rules say that you've got to put that contract out to the whole of Europe to decide who tests the 11-car Pendolino. What, just to test it? To test it, right. So they wouldn't then get the contract for, for to run the service. It was pure, the testing itself is a contract in itself. Yes, separate contact. Because Virgin would, once the tests were over, Virgin would, get, would, would start running the 11-car Pendolino. Yes. But the actual contract for testing it had to go out to the, the EU. Now, I can't remember, I must admit, I can't remember how much it cost. It was six figures, so it wasn't millions, but it was a lot of money. Yeah. And after months and months, we got the result back and... Virgin won the contract, <laughs> funnily enough. And I remember. Were they the only bidder? Or were I, I have no idea because actually ministers don't get a no. lot of insight into who all the bidders are, the same with, with the actual franchising process. Um, but do you get to decide or not? No, no, no. no. It's, it's purely on basis of finance and, you know, there's assessments done on whether this or that company can actually deliver it. But I civil suspect, service, do the civil service decide? Yes. Yeah. And so we were a few hundred grand out of pocket. Virgin were testing the new 11-car Pendolino. Everyone was happy, in inverted commas, and I just thought, oh, for fuck's sake. <laughs> I mean, seriously. And it, it's a tiny little thing, but every day in Whitehall, you get the same thing time and time again, where nonsensical decisions have to be taken. I remember, it was actually during the EU referendum, I, th- I remember Nicola Sturgeon launching the Scottish, her party's Scottish Parliament manifesto, saying that um, under her leadership future public procurement would be based on, and she said something like, uh, you know, equal rights or re- diversity or something. I can't remember what the war is, but I remember putting out a press release at the time saying, no, it won't, because that's against EU rules. <laughs> and you're campaigning to stay in the EU, so you have to obey EU p- procurement rules. And, you know, uh, so there was all sorts of things bubbling under that, you know, resentments and, and, and stuff that kind of solidified when with Cameron's ridiculous speech to the Commons because another one, another thing they took credit for I think was saying no to an EU army yeah. and uh, an opt out of the Euro which was John Major's achievement he yeah. was trying to cherry pick other <laughs> Prime Minister's achievements and present that as part of his deal and I just thought if you have to do that you don't have a deal mate but at the cost I mean I understand and I think a lot of us was slightly annoyed the EU wasn't more flexible in those negotiations mm. and didn't give a Prime Minister more that wanted to stay in the EU, particularly those of us who wanted to stay and still do. Um, but the cost of leaving, do, do, I mean, for all the for all the stories, and I, I get the frustration and, and the waste, and I don't take any of that lightly, but the political cost of leaving, does that not outweigh having to put out contracts for an extra two carriages, you know, breaking Europe up and what it's done for peace? Right. Let's take what that last bit, what you said there about what we've done, what it's done for peace. <clears throat> I know that the EU has been given at some point the Nobel Peace Prize. I think everybody has at some point. You know, I, I haven't I, yet, but I don't, I don't yeah, you'll get it. You, I heard the rumour. <laughs> You're on the shortlist for next year. Uh, you know, the reason peace has been maintained in Europe, first of all, is that the Nazis aren't there anymore, which is a plus. Yes. And NATO is there. And, of course, for most of the post-war years, there was the Cold War and NATO and the Warsaw Pact were facing each other off. Um, And also democratisation. Democracies, on the whole, with a few exceptions, don't go to war with each other. 
They go to war when one of them becomes a dictatorship. That's what causes war. Now, I think, actually, to give the EU its due, it has done a tremendous job in encouraging the modernisation, the democratisation of former Eastern Bloc countries that have come into the EU. And I give them credit for that. But I, I don't accept the wider point that peace in Europe in general has been secured by the EU. I think it's been secured by a whole range of things. But don't you fear that we leave, maybe someone else leaves and then we, we turn our back, we, we then retreat into nationalism and suspicion, we're not sat around a table, we're not as entwined, we're not as emotionally and financially invested in each other? No, I, 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 don't, I genuinely don't fear that. I hope not. I, I want you to reassure me. No, look... Um, the idea that, that, that countries can exist in a siege economy without dealing with other countries is has never been a fashionable uh, form of politics in the whole of, of civilization. We will always trade with and deal with other countries, and we won't restrict that dealing and trading to the members of the EU. We never have. We've always dealt with, with a wider world, um, and, and that's just the way politics works. Um, But the reason, I think the fundamental reason for me, and it kind of goes back to what David Cameron's deal said, what always irked me was this democratic argument. And there was a time when the left in Britain took self-determination quite seriously. Mm. Now, it genuinely doesn't do that anymore. Um, And I think that's a shame. And uh, Tony Benn was mad in many respects. um, And he did a huge amount of damage to the Labour Party. But he was right in this. If you can't sack your government, then I wouldn't say you don't live in a democracy, but you certainly are not as democratic as you ought to be. And the people who make the rules that govern this country should be able to be sacked by the people of this country. It's, it's a straightforward line. And I every time I've heard it mentioned in the media, I see the kind of level of obfuscation and arrogant dismissal that actually enforces the arguments for leave. You sound like an independence campaign at all. Well, I've thought about this, and I absolutely understand why people would say that. First of all, and you can make the argument to SNP people who argue fervently for independence from the UK but want to remain in the EU. I mean, the arguments are the same. I, I, my argument is slightly nuanced because I think Scotland is an integral part of the UK because we share the same culture, the same history, same language as the rest of this island. And there is actually no cultural difference between Scotland and you know Manchester, Liverpool, some parts of London and the South East. Whereas Britain is a part of the EU, we don't share the same language, we don't share the same culture, the parts of history that we share, we were on rather different sides. And it's just not the same. It's not, uh, uh, and and if you want to be transactional about it, and if you want to just talk about the economics, you know, Scotland gets a massive subsidy from the UK Exchequer as it should, and that's part of the terms of our arrangement. I think that's a good thing. I was listening to the John McTernan podcast you did, and John absolutely right says that the UK has proved itself to be the best redistributive measure in the whole of the world mm. in terms of getting money from rich places to poor places. The EU. I have a big, much bigger problem with that. First of all, because we are massive net contributors. And that money, we cannot be sure that money is being spent properly because the other parts of the EU are not democratically accountable to us. So I think that's where I would draw the line. But when you talk about democratic accountability, 
people in Scotland, lots of people in Scotland would say, well, I don't vote Conservative. Mm-hmm. I'm getting a Conservative government running Scotland from Westminster. I didn't vote Leave, and neither did 62% of my countrymen and women. Where's the democratic accountability there? And that's why we had a referendum. Well, the democratic accountability is that, well, OK, then let's have a referendum to decide whether you want to change that. And they didn't. We didn't. We wanted to stay in the UK. That was the settled will of the Scottish people. We decided to stay in the UK. What then of Scottish Euroscepticism? Because it doesn't often get talked about. In fact, mm. I don't think it ever really gets mentioned. You know, you get the unionist side gets talked about, but it's predominantly a, a conversation led by the SNP about wanting to leave, uh, despite the fact that, as you say, 55% of uh, Scottish voters voted to uh, remain in the union. Uh, 38% of Scottish voters voted to leave the EU, and they're not often talked about. Now, obviously, it's a, it's a significant majority, 62 to 38, so let's not pretend it's uh, as close as perhaps the 2014 referendum. But nevertheless, that's nearly 4 in 10 people in Scotland voted to leave the EU. And I don't think that often gets... Recognition, perhaps, isn't the right word. We don't often have a, a conversation about what Scottish Euroscepticism is. Is it predominantly, do you think, a Conservative unionist vote? Or are there are there parts of the the left-wing Benite Euroscepticism in there as well? Oh, there, there's that. Plus there's also the kind of traditional SNP. Jim Sillers. Jim Sillers, type. Alec Neil. Um, I mean, we estimate that something like th- between 300 and 350,000 SNP supporters voted leave in, in 2016. More than a million Scots voted leave. That was way more than the number of people who voted for the SNP in the Scottish Parliament elections that year, for example. You know, it, it's a significant number of people and we don't get, we don't, it's never referred to. And you'll hear Nicola Sturgeon and other SNP ministers and leaders say Scotland voted Remain. Well, OK, I accept that. It, it was a majority. Scotland also voted no, but they don't say that. <laughs> well, no, but I mean, to be fair, any politician makes the case based on the, the stats that suit. Yeah, and I'm allowed to get pissed off at them. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. You have, you have a, uh, and I think you have expressed that but, but, um, clearly. You know, but look at London. You know, people talk about, you know, they usually talk about Scotland and London in the same breath. They are remain voting areas of the UK. Four out of ten Londoners voted leave. Yeah. You know, if you walk along the street, four out of every ten people you met voted leave. I've got a friend who lives in Brighton. And he, he and we're still friends, but he won't talk to me about about the EU because <laughs> he's worried it will fall out. Um, and I want to say to him, well, you know, when you walk along the street in Brighton, one in every th- uh, three person people that you meet, they voted leave. It's this idea we all want to believe we're living in a homogenous country where everyone believes the same thing, yeah. a region. It's not true. But also, you know, and, and conversely, people kind of talk about the North as all having voted leave, and that's yeah, not true either, and working-class people and, and all, all the rest of it. And I, as a Remain, as a, someone from a working-class background in the East Midlands, find it immensely frustrating that um, parts of England basically get damned. Um, and anyway, even if they did vote leave, we shouldn't be trying to divide people and condemn them based on the fact they disagreed on a constitutional question. But it's not a constitutional question for so many people, is it? This is a this this is a culture war, and it's part of a wider culture war about you know if you'll remain basically that says you're open, and if you'll leave that says you're closed. Now I don't necessarily agree with that, but that's where the debate sort of exists at the moment. Does it not voting leave challenge bl- your Blairite credentials to some extent? Of course it does. Have um, you spoken to him about it? No, I haven't. The last he'd thing- tell you off. Um, he would tell me off, and and I wouldn't answer back. <laughs> 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 uh, 
Um, and I'd probably end up apologising. Hey, Tom, come on, mate. Yeah. <laughs> and look, I remember you in government being a pragmatic, open individual, and yet here you are, yeah, on the same side of Nigel Farage and you know, Boris Johnson and all the rest of it. I mean, Tom, what, what on earth has happened? Tony, you were on the same side as Ken Livingstone. Well, you know, not not all the time. Yeah, you know. <laughs> Don't forget when Frank Dobson stood against Ken in, in 2000. Yeah, so there is that. Yeah. Anyway. But yeah, um, of course it, it challenges my, my Blu-ray credentials. Um, I'm, I'm more relaxed about that given that I never intend to go back into politics. So, so that's that's a bit easier. Um, I, I, I am grateful that Tony wasn't leading the Remain campaign. Because even now, when I hear him talking, his analysis is just brilliant. And I look at him and I think, why did we get rid of you again? Yeah, you know, you're not the only one, mate. I know. Uh, uh, he's, he's just brilliant. And I actually do think he's wrong on this. I think he was wrong in government, for example, to allow uh, the, you know, the next wave of immigration from the new uh, EU states without that seven-year buffer that other countries were, were applying. Um, I think that was a touch of arrogance on his part. Um, but, uh, and, and I do think, you know, he's, he's known to be very strong in favour of Britain's membership of the Euro. Um, he's obviously in, in favour of, of, of our remaining. But when I hear anyone, including Tony, talk about remain and reform, I, I just roll my eyes. I mean, this remain and reform, my hairy arse. <laughs> so in terms of, there's remain reform, there's also various versions of Brexit. There's oh, the withdrawal God, yes. agreement, there's a no-deal Brexit. Yep. Um, you know, by the time people listen to this, years in the future, um, who knows where we'll be? I mean, a no-deal Brexit would be a catastrophe, wouldn't it? Yes, I, I think it would be a terrible idea. So um, what sort of Brexit? It's my, it's my, it's my second least favoured option. And what is your most favoured option? My most favoured option would probably at the moment be Theresa May's deal. I thought you were going to ask what's your least favourite option. Well, I'll come on, I just wanted to find out what your favourite <laughs> option was first. A deal that is perhaps dead, unless Rory yeah. Stewart wins the leadership contest. I, I think even if Boris wins it. I mean, if Bo- you know, Boris is, of course, has uh, nailed himself to the mast of getting out on the 31st of October. Yeah. Good luck there, mate. And, and you know... Is even he going to bring the ERG along with him if he has to do some form of maze deal? My my get my best guess is he will negotiate something a ten year deal in the backstop. Now I know the islands yeah. against having any time limit, but if the alternative actually is a no deal, they might feel inclined to think, well, ten years is long enough to get whatever technology we need in place. But I was quite happy with maze deal, and I know that you know. It's, it's like the Labour Party and socialism. I used to be a born-again Christian, and it was exactly the same thing. But you're, This is the right type of Christian. You're not really a Christian. You're, this is a right socialist. You're not really a socialist. Now I'm not a proper Brexiter because I supported Theresa May's deal. But Theresa May's deal, actually, she was the worst salesman in the world. But actually, when you listen to Michael Gove selling it, it's a bloody good deal. Uh, are you still a Christian? Uh, Chris Bryant... I wonder why I keep mentioning it. Uh, Chris Bryant once des- described me as a recovering evangelical, which I like. So yes, I am still a Christian, but I'm, I don't go to church. So what what denomination would you be? Catholic, uh, uh, Church of Scotland. Okay, so proddy. 
Proddy. So uh, you live in Glasgow, you'd be a Rangers fan in Glasgow? If I was a football supporter, yes. You'd be an Israeli flag-waving I went. Glasgow the first old. time I realised this, I went to, as an MP, I was invited along to Parkhead, Celtic's um, uh, yeah, stadium, great stadium, for an Old Firm match. Wow. And it was a brilliant match. And I don't like football, but it was two all. It was, oh, it was man. A brilliant Perfect. Match. But... It hadn't long started, and I, I, I tapped Tommy McAvoy's shoulder. There was a number of MPs there, and I said, Tommy, what's going on over there? And there was a small corner of of Parkhead, and there was all these Israeli flags flying. And it was explained to me yeah. that Yasser Arafat had, played a, had paid an unexpected visit to West End of Belfast to meet uh, Jerry Adams one day, and word of this got out, and by the time he left... <laughs> <laughs> some unionists had cobbled together some Israeli flags and decked the whole streets all the way along to the airport. And I thought, Northern Ireland and now the west of Scotland, we don't have enough divisions of our own. Let's import <laughs> the Middle East. And that's that's why I'm glad that I, neither I nor any of my sons go to football. Oh, but... For- I mean, I, in I, Scotland, it's horrible. I the do defi- get that. The definition of an atheist in Glasgow is someone who goes to an old firm match to enjoy the football. <laughs> I just, I get, I get all the problems with it, and as an England fan, I, you know, I get that. But there is something that the old firm has that other games don't have, for better and for worse. There is an intensity that, you know, you can't take your eyes off it. Same with the car crash. Yeah, and 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 that brings us immediately back to the divisions over Brexit. You know, the people on both sides becoming more angry than the issue justifies and resorting to personal abuse and hatred over a, a political issue. And it's even worse, over a game of football. I mean, do you, do you, do you as a Brexiteer, do you, do, you, do you fear getting milkshaked? Oh, thanks for putting that into the... <laughs> Just into in case, I'll put your mind. picture on the podcast yeah, as well so that. that everyone can carry it around. I think if, actually, if it was... Uh, if, if this was three years ago and the milkshake thing had started, I probably would have been, I guess. And I would have been during the 2014 independence referendum. Did you get any abuse during the 2014? Oh, God, yes. All the time. It was hellish. Every, I mean, I have never worked so hard in my life as, a, as during the independence referendum. Uh, every morning, afternoon and night, all, you know, for the last six months, it was just... You know, it was just a, a slog. And every single time we went out, no matter what part of the constituency we were in, someone would shout at us. I mean, no, no physical, nothing physical. But the people would shout abuse at us. What and, sort of stuff? Oh, unionist traitors and... and you quizzlings. Know, quizzlings was a big was word. Was a big word, I remember. Uh, Tories, you know, apparently that's a big insult yeah. in, in some parts of Scotland. <laughs> Um, and it was just the, the sort of pre-Corbyn Corbynism. Oh yeah, oh big time. I mean, we were red Tories. Uh, there was a yes, I remember that phrase. We were, I mean, we a lot of the trending. phrases Corbyn used, he, yeah. he exported from 2014. Yeah, and in fact, actually, the reason Corbyn supporters haven't taken over the Scottish Labour Party to the same extent as they have in some parts of England is because after the independence referendum, there was a massive increase in SNP membership. So by the time Corbyn came along. There was hardly anyone left to, to join Labour. In terms of just 2014 and, and, and what a febrile atmosphere it was, do you think it was equal on both sides in terms of the abuse? No, the... absolutely not. And I know that nationalists will say the opposite. But I'll, I'll leave you, I'll, I'll say this one thing. 
nationalists led by Salmond, and it was Salmond who said this, that the referendum was a joyous celebration civic of democracy. Civic and joyous was right? the phrase, yeah. Yeah, civic and joyous. Nationalists all say that. Unionists don't say that because we were getting pelters. It was hellish. We couldn't do a street stall without people coming up and shouting and, 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 and screaming into our face. Um, and that is a horrible, horrible experience. And I'm sorry, we didn't do that to them. Now, I know there were occasions, I'm sure people from the Orange Lodge were behaving badly. On the whole, that abuse was only coming in one direction, and I don't care what nationalists now say in, in their attempts to, to rewrite that part of history. In terms then of, of, of Scottish political culture, I mean, it was the first time, and obviously so many things were, were happening there for the first time that we've now seen grow elsewhere, but things like Wings Over Scotland as a website, a kind of alternative media. You know, this is pre-Canary, pre-Squawk Box, pre-Navara um, Media, a kind of grassroots citizen journalism, really. Yeah. Are there any positives to be taken from that, do you think? Not from the ones that you've mentioned. I mean, and you're right to to slot uh, Wings Over Scotland in with, you know, uh, Squat Box, Canary, and Evolve Politics and, 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 you know, awful sites like that. I think there is some value in in citizen journalism. Um, although, as a member of the NUJ and someone who actually was trained as a journalist, I do slightly resent this idea that anyone can pick up a keyboard and somebody become a journalist, you know, yeah. pick up a scalpel mate and become a surgeon <laughs> at the same time. Um, but obviously th- there is a kind of, it's all part of the, the incredible democratic effect of the internet that everyone can have access to doing things they never were able to do b- before. Um, and what you're talking about, I think, should be seen as something to be celebrated and, and welcomed, but too often it is captured by extremes and that's what puts people off. But in terms of accountability, do you think it... In terms of the 2014 referendum, I, I realise it must be hard to think of positives, apart from the result. But do you think, you know, people say, well, actually, you know, this has politicised people in Scotland, there's a high turnout, it's made people think about their identity, it's made people think about their community. You know, are, are there positives apart from the result that you could take from it? No. If I could wave a magic wand, I would have much rather it never happened. Um, but then then again, you know, it was probably inevitable from the moment we had a Scottish Parliament that there would be a referendum at some point. But, um, no, I, I, I look at Scottish society now, I mean, that was five years ago, and I don't see any improvement in the, the discourse in Scotland. And, 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 I, and I fear for England. And this brings me back to what I said earlier about, about referendums. Referendums are a dreadful, dreadful idea because they invite you to cast a binary decision about a really complex issue. And I say this as a Brexiter because yeah. I didn't want the EU referendum to happen. But once it's called and once the rules have been set, you're forced to take a side. Yeah. And that's what happened in the Scottish independence referendum. This idea that you can you can decide the future of a country by having a mad dash for 50% plus one of the vote is mad. Referendums are only worthwhile if you're going to hold it in order to confirm what you already understand to be the will of the people. So in, in 1997, there was a referendum on devolution. No one was surprised at the outcome. It was about 67, 70% for a Scottish Parliament. That wasn't devised because people, that was an accepted, that's what Scotland wanted. But when you have a mad dash for 50 plus one, that is the worst possible way of governing. I mean, it's always 
try and find positives for my own mental health. I think, <laughs> my own, you know, for the for the soul to to not. I find this era very distressing. But um, you know, there are. From what I can tell, you have a positive relationship with your successor, Stuart McDonald, who's the... He's a good guy, yeah. He, I get on with him very well. He's someone I'm very keen to have on this podcast. So even when you have these deep divisions uh, and, and the sores perhaps are still a little open, um, you can still do business with people, can't you? You can still get on across these ideological fault lines. Yeah, I mean, as an MP, I pride myself and have been in very good terms with MPs of almost every other party, including the SNP, Pete Wisher, uh, who I know he's a friend of yours. Yeah, I got and very I, well with Pete. I used Pete. to get on really well with Pete. I still do. Um, and a bunch of Tories, even the occasional Lib Dem. Oh so, my yeah, God. Yeah, I mean, Serious? Yeah, real, real <laughs> tolerance, yeah. But everyone's getting on with Lib Dems these days. You were ahead of the curve. Yeah, probably. Well, my very first vote in the general election was for the SDP. 83? 83. My word, well, there you go. Come for, well, while we're on online, um should mention that you were forced to stand down from your role as internet advisor to Ed Miliband <laughs> in January 2012 following adverse media reaction to your downfall parody ridiculing yeah. Alex Salmon. Now, yeah. there were so many downfall parodies. And, uh, you know, people will know the scene where Hitler is ranting and then people are out in the corridor listening and then some people leave the room. It became a, a big deal. What? What were you? What were you what saying then? What was I thinking? What, 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 what did you have Hitler saying as Salmon? What was the? Oh, I think what happened was uh, Joe McAlpine, who was another MSP and advisor to Salmon, had said something like, "If you're not a nationalist, you can't love Scotland." Something like that. So the scene that I set out was Salmon preparing for his coronation as King of Scotland, yeah. um, being told by his advisors, "Look, Joan, Joan said this." You know, you're going to have a stushy in your hands. And he goes a bit mental. Now, even now you get people saying, oh, Tom Harris was complaining about Alice Salmon to, to Hitler. I, I'm one of the few Labour MPs, ex-MPs, who actually got on really well with Alec. We used to go for drinks um, in Dolphin Square after the house rose, and he was very good company. You know, I'm, you know I know that you're not supposed to say this, but I, I used to get on very well with Alec. And Alec never once suspected that, I was trying to compare him with Hitler. And as you say, there's more than a thousand of those those parodies on, on YouTube at the time. Um, and it actually, now that I remember, it wasn't even the first one I'd done. So <laughs> <laughs> who else had you done? But, but you know, it, was, it wasn't advisor to Ed Miliband, it was advisor to Joanne Lamont, who That's right. become Sorry, it was, leader yeah. of the Scottish uh, Labour Party. Um, uh it was supposed to, it was a laugh and it was ill judged because I should have known what the reaction was going to be. I suppose you live and learn. I mean, g- given the things that happened. Actually, since... can I just interject there? Yeah. I I promised Carolyn at the time that I was going to come off social media and she was annoyed that I'd done this and rightly so. Um, but I had quickly, as, as, as the world was tumbling around my ears and I was getting phone calls from uh, Joanne's special advisor informing me that I should really resign. I Even as that happened, I was on my computer doing another downfall video. <laughs> and this one... Oh, my God! I know, I'll let you see it, because it's up... Tom! No, and this one was me as Hitler. <laughs> you know, run, running out my, my strategy for media, you know, social media strategy, and then being interrupted and told that, Tom, your latest downfall video is being interpreted <laughs> as comparing Hitler with Salmond, and I go berserk <laughs> and end up resigning 
because people are saying that. I mean, it, that is very meta. It was much funnier than the original, but nobody ever saw it. <laughs> and is the original still out there? Uh, no, I think I took it down off my channel. Oh, well, I will try and find it and put it in the. Um, oh, thanks for that. <laughs> try and put it in the show notes. Um, this has flown by. How are you really? We've done an hour. You're kicking me off. I've got to go. We both got to go. Yeah. Uh, Tom, it's been a pleasure. I've wanted to have you on for so long. You, uh, it's been brilliant talking to you. Thank you so much for coming in. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you for inviting me. Well, there you go, Tom Harris. As usual, the hour flew by. But great to talk about things like Scottish Euroscepticism, why he's pro-UK but anti-EU. You know, just one of those people that constantly surprises you, and that's always a thrill in politics. Um, I've known Tom for quite a few years. Uh, he's always a great laugh. He's always good company. Um, and, you know, he... He talks straight, and that was what was great fun about uh, getting to interview him for the first time. Um, because, I mean, that experience, the, the things he's seen, the places he's been, the, at the time that he was there, um, just make it such a unique experience. So he was, a, he was a brilliant guest, and his book is fantastic. I've put a link to it um, in, in the show notes here if you want to buy it. Ten Years in the Death of the Labour Party. It is a rip-roaring read, um, and... Uh, uh, well, based on this interview, I'm sure you can sort of guess what it's like, but it's brilliant, and there's some fantastic insights in there. Um, so there you go, that was Tom Harris. My next guest uh, at the live show is Kia Starmer, uh, and then I'll be doing two specials from the Edinburgh Festival. They will be announced soon. And, of course, as well as those specials, my new stand-up show is on sale, Brexit Pursued by a Bear, um, which starts at the Edinburgh Festival on the 31st of July and runs till the 25th or 26th of August uh, at the Pleasance 4th, in the Pleasance Courtyard, uh, the same room I've been in for the last couple of years. So you can get your tickets now through mattford.com slash live or through the Ed Fringe website, edfringe.com. So hopefully I'll see you there. If not at a political party in the future, as I say, Keir Starmer's my next one. And then the next one in London in September is Ken Clark. And as always, uh, approaching uh, the very biggest and very best names in politics uh, to get them on the show. So... Hopefully I'll see some of you at the Edinburgh Festival. As always, thank you for downloading this. And if you could share it uh, by word of mouth, with friends, uh, over email, on social media. And if you could leave an iTunes review, that really, really does help. So if you've got a second free, just write a quick review if you can, and it just helps other people find it. That's enough from me. Ta-ra! powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Crookshank. Jesse Crookshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout. Because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl, yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. 
Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs>